0: Learn more at Marines.com. We chat with former Mariners pitcher Glenn Abbott. Spent parts of 11 seasons in a Major League uniform, six of those years with the Seattle Mariners. He spent over 50 years in baseball as a player and coach and was part of two World Series teams as well, including with the Oakland A's in his rookie season. Well, Glenn, before we talk about your time with the Mariners, I want to set the table a little bit. Uh, the beginning of your career is quite interesting. You came up with the Oakland A's in 1973. Of course, they won the World Series in 72. They won it again in 73. They won it again in 74. What were those early days of your career like with the dynasty of the Oakland A's in that time?
1: It's funny because here I was a kid coming from Arkansas, so I never always wanted to play baseball, you know, and when I got to the big leagues, I was, um, the first year I got called up, went up in 74. It was my first full year in the big league. And, you know, you're just so enamored with um, with being in a big league, you forget about how special that can be, you know, being a World Series. You know, everybody would love to play in one. And I, I think I really appreciated it a whole lot more as I played baseball a few more years. You know what I mean? Because you do it your first year, you're so excited about being in the major leagues, you, do, you, you forget about that uh everything else you i mean it's just it's like a world series every day for you you know so i think i just got caught up into that and i never really got a chance to appreciate it till later and then playing with guys that had great careers that never got a chance to play in the big leagues you know i mean a, a world series so I, I i felt i was very fortunate even though i didn't get to participate in the world series to be there on the team i was very fortunate
0: Man, those teams are so interesting, so good on the field, so interesting off the field. But Reggie Jackson and Raleigh Fingers and Catfish Hunter, and the list goes on and on and on. What was it like to just be in that same clubhouse with that group?
1: Pretty neat, because, you know, like I said, they were a good team, and they expected to win, and they did win, you know. They they have a great offense, but they scored enough runs, and they, they played good, sound baseball. And uh, they, I say uh, that's a big thing I noticed, because I remember when I went to Seattle in <clears> the <throat> expansion draft, West Stock, who was a pitching coach in Oakland, at the time, you know, he was a pitching coach in Seattle, mm. and I remember him talking one time about how the difference it was, like with Oakland, because those guys in Oakland they expected to win. That's just the way they came to the ballpark. If they lost today, they're going to win tomorrow. Well, when I came to Seattle. There's so many young guys that's never been in the big leagues, hardly at all, if any, and all that kind of stuff. And they were just too cool to be there. You know what I mean? So it was just such a difference in the atmosphere, you know, when you get guys that, that have been in the big leagues and, and, they, they, and they have won and they're expected to win again, you know. For, as far as, like, young guys, just glad to be where they're at. So that was the biggest thing I could see there.
0: When you think about your time in Seattle, what are some of the memories that, that flood back? What do you think about
1: a lot of good friends i got good friends there now that we stay in touch with you know that, that we met while we were up there we love seattle but in fact uh, that's the only place uh, me and my wife both were born in arkansas and we and we didn't care about living in california at all we would we fell in love with it I mean, we lived there and i'll tell you if it wasn't for our parents being back here in arkansas whenever i got i went from from the uh, Mariners to the Tigers. We would probably stay there because that was a big decision for us. I told us that you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna move, we need to move now. We're, you know, because baseball was paying for the move at that time. And I'm glad, so glad that we did because all, our parents have, have all passed on now, and, and you know they had some bad health, and so we wouldn't have been able to be around them very much. You know, and because it's tough when you're that far away. Over two thousand miles, you just can't go there you know every week or something you know like that so so it worked out better for us to come back to Arkansas, but but we both would have been content to live up there in Seattle
0: you pitched in the second game in Seattle Mariners history you came in out of the bullpen what was the atmosphere like in those first couple of games in the franchise history in a full kingdom against the angels?
1: oh, it was exciting it really was It the bad thing about it, we had to face Nolan Ryan and Frank Tanana in the first two games. I don't even really know if we scored a runoff, either one of them, okay. <laughs> you know. But but it was exciting because you could feel electricity in the area. You know, people were excited. We were excited, and it, it was it was a big deal. I, I thought that was very. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't such a big deal. It's one of the most exciting moments I think. Just being in something that's brand new, it's the first game or two that you play. You know, it's just an exciting time
0: how exciting was it for you i mean you were with oakland obviously but but coming to the mariners you had a real opportunity to be on the starting staff yeah you pitched a ton in a mariners uniform for those years i mean that had to be pretty exciting to get that opportunity
1: it was it really was and like i said i really enjoyed that and west stock was a pitching coach up there which i've had him in oakland so i was very comfortable with him so that worked out good too you know and and that was just, uh, uh, it was just amazing, say, yes, man, I had the opportunity to do that, you know, and, and I feel so fortunate to have been As a matter of fact, you know, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think when I left, the only two people that were there from day one was me and Dave D. House. <laughs> I'm from ground crew and everything, if I'm not mistaken. Anybody in the front office, you know, from, from the very first year. I think Randy Adamack, he's been be there longer, of course. Of course, he came the second year, I believe. But, uh, but that was kind of um uh, just amazing how much stuff changes in about six or seven years you know with it with a with a ball club how much different things that went on with the Mariners so I say, to be the only guy left you and the, the radio announcer, from the time it started in six or seven short years that's that's
0: a lot of turnover that's amazing do you ha- do you have a favorite on the field moment in a Mariners uniform <sighs> probably one that,
1: that, that made me feel uh, uh, probably more than anything if you tell me to come back well but i got a uh, spinal meningitis when i was up there a viral meningitis i'm sorry i went in i would had t- some uh bone chips on my elbow had them taken out i went to uh salt lake city where a triple a team was. i was going to do a uh rehab down there well i go down there i pitched one time and i got sick like the first night i got definitely sick and I couldn't pitch them. Well, they sent me back to Seattle and did all these tests. And didn't know what was wrong with me. You know, they kept running these tests. I had a viral meningitis. And heck, this was like in June. And I missed the rest of the year. It was like uh, before I ever came back. And even starting the next year, I wasn't able to do anything. So, and I was able to come back. I may, uh, uh a matter of fact, I pitched really good. I remember Renee Lashman was a manager. And he told me, he called me and says, well, you need to find out if you, can you still pitch or not? You know, because I went through all this, I lost a lot of weight and all that stuff, being sick. And so it worked out good. I had a good game. And so everything was really good. I think that one really kind of stood out to me.
0: I'm looking at that year. It's amazing. Uh, 83, you pitched, you started 21 times for the Mariners that year and you walked 22 guys. You just, you never walked anybody.
1: Well, yeah, that's kind of the name of what my game was is not walking many people, you know, just throwing a lot of strikes. And uh, sometimes I'll do too many strikes, if you know what I mean. But, <laughs> but but that's just the way I had to pitch, you know. I didn't have that overwhelming stuff. I was a strike thrower,
0: and, and
1: uh, that's what I did.
0: I got to ask you about a game you pitched in Oakland. Uh, you were part of the first four-pitcher no-hitter in baseball history. It was a game that Vita Blue started. What do you remember <clears> – <throat> About being part of that no hitter.
1: That game, it was the last game of the year, 1975, I believe. And we were playing the California Angels at home. And it was predetermined when the game started because we're going to play in the playoffs. They're going to play uh, uh, Boston in the playoffs. And Vita Blue was going to pitch five innings. I was going to pitch the sixth. Paul Lindblad the seventh. And Raleigh Fingers the eighth and ninth. Cal- it's scripted out just like a spring training game, you know? And so that's when we started the season. Here, when we started the game. Man, here we go out there and Vita through. He just blew him away for five minutes. There was nothing close. And I remember Alvin Dark had talked to him, or, or Tanner, I forget who the manager was at the time, talked to uh, Vita about, you know, how hey, you got to know there's something special. And Vita said, no, we're staying with our game plan. We're going to do You know, we're getting ready for the playoffs. This is just another game. So, I pitched the sixth inning. I remember saying, oh, please, Lord, don't let me give up the hit, you know, because <laughs> I knew what was going on. And, and next thing you know, we go through it. Like I said, they didn't get any hits. It ended up being a record of some kind. that of, was pre-scripted, you know, before the game ever started. And I didn't know it'd be, it would be end up being such a uh, uh, a big game, you know, to have a four-man no-hitter. So it, it what's kind of funny about that?
0: Who's the toughest hitter that you faced? George Brett, I thought.
1: There was a lot of good hitters that you faced, but George Brett seemed like he was—he could, whatever they needed, George Brett would rise to the occasion. If they needed a, a double, he could do it, or, or a home run. You know what I mean? Yeah. It seemed like he arose to the occasion. And he's a guy I didn't want to be facing with Ben Olayson when you had to pitch to him.
0: It's amazing how you started your career with World Series winners with Oakland, <clears throat> and you ended your career with a World Series winner in Detroit. I mean, that was a really good team that you ended with.
1: It was, it was. I wish I could have stayed with it the whole way, but, you know, I, they let me go in the, 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 the very last of August because they wanted to get, another le- get a left-hander in the bullpen, another one, and end ended up uh, get another left-hander. But but I enjoyed my time in Detroit. It was a good team. It was a very good team. You know, it was a team that started out 35-5, and mm. and it was just incredible how good a team that was. In back they were clicking on all cylinders. The time the season started, and he just kept on through right through the World Series. It was a that's that was an amazing team there. Get a chance to be on a World Series team and end up on a World Series team, and so many people never get that opportunity. You know, to even play in the playoffs. It's something that always stuck to me in my mind. I remember when I was in Oakland in 1975, Billy Williams was on, was on our team. Philly had picked him up later in the year. He, he always seemed like he'd pick up some some uh, older players for the the Bennett race, in, you know, through September. And I remember we was having dinner one night. There was six or seven of us out eating, and, and Billy Williams was, was there, and he was talking about he. It, it got, you know, everybody knew Billy Williams was a great player. I mean, he could have won a, probably a couple of MVPs if it wasn't for Johnny Bench. I mean, he had those type numbers, you know, with Chicago. But he was just on a bad team. But he had he would. We knew he was going to be like a Hall of Fame type player. And I heard him say, he said, "You know, I would give everything I've done this game to get a ring." And I never forgot that because, you know, there's so many people that have been great players in the game and never got an opportunity to get one. And There's one right there with Billy Williams, you know, and uh, it's it's just, you, 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 some people just don't appreciate that. And I remember, so ever since then, every time I've been uh, coaching with a, a minor league club and, and we have uh, we're in the playoffs. I'll bring that story up and tell the players that I said, you know, don't take anything for granted because if you're in A ball or Triple A or wherever, getting a chance to win a ring is a special thing. You know, of course, the pinnacle is the World Series, but but you can't take it for granted. There's a lot of people that's never won a ring playing the game. They played their whole careers, whether it be minor leagues or major leagues, So to try to keep focused and, and keep your eye on the prize, you know, wherever you're at.
0: You mentioned Charlie Finley. What was it like being around Charlie Finley in those Oakland days?
1: He was pretty tough, you know. He he he, he was a uh, uh, no nonsense type guy, you know. But I mean, he was pretty tough, and I will never forget. I remember uh, when I was in Triple A in 1973, I won 18 games in Triple A, and uh, Phil Garner was on our team, same team mm. in Tucson. He anyway, the so next year, I and mean, Phil, talking was gonna like want oh, to get the minimum in you know, 1974 uh, when he started to say he wanted to get the minimum for that year because the minimum is only $15,000, Major League Minimum and so I said, yeah, that's what we're going to do hold that for it so he said, I got my contract in the mail I didn't sign it, sent it back and so Phil so Gronin did the same thing well, next thing you know, I get a phone call and it was operated because back then there wasn't no cell phones or anything he says, uh, yes, we have a person to person call from Mr. Glenn Abbott I said, this is he and she said, go ahead Charlie funny read me. He crawled up one side of me and down the other. I mean, he he called me everything in the book. I mean, just, just berated me into how dare I you know, send it back and ungratefulness. i am tell you, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And dang, he hung up the phone. So I got scared and signed the contract right then, you know, because <laughs> he scared me. I mean, I was the owner of the team. It was funny because Phil Garner still didn't sign it. And I remember we both started the season because, see, back then they only had 10 pitchers. Mm. And Oakland was solid. So both of us were in triple A starting the 74 season. I got called up whenever they needed the 10th pitcher because they started the season with nine because of the off days. Mm. And I got called up the 1st of June. That's when they needed the 10th pitcher. And so I went up there and stayed the rest of the season. But we were, and and Phil Garner got called up right after me. He wasn't probably a week. We're in Minnesota, and Sal Bando would pull the calf muscle. He was – they needed Gardner. He cut. They call him if Phil Gardner wouldn't sign the contract, Finley did the same thing to him, and he still didn't sign. So he's playing on the unsigned contract. He wanted it retroactive from the from the start of the season. They said no, and he says, "Well, I will go back home then." I mean, he he showed me some real courage. I could never do that. And I know, I remember. Vandol uh, and Jackson; those guys got on the phone until finish and said, look. You got to get that. You got to do this. We need him. You know, we got to have him on the team. So they did. And Harry played, but he had so much more courage than I had because they scared me to death when they be told <laughs> talk to me like that. So I thought that was just ironic how how Phil had that kind of courage to stand up to him like that. But oh man, uh, that's just the way it was. I mean, you know, he was just. Uh, you know, back then you, you just didn't dare question anything. I think that's where the game has changed. You know, you didn't question. do you know, coaches when they talked to you, they were usually yelling at you. You know, so it's just a different atmosphere at that time.
0: How many World Series rings did you end up with?
1: Uh, one with Oakland Open and one with the um, uh, with the Tigers. And I was coaching with the Mets and the Minor Leagues when they won. So I, they give you know, all the coaches got one. Uh, in the organization when I was with the Mets. So well, I've got three World Series rings.
0: Wow. Hey, yeah, you mentioned your, your coaching career. Your coaching career was longer than your playing career. You ended up coaching for a long time. What did you enjoy most about your yeah. coaching career?
1: I just enjoyed being around those kids. I, I really did. You know, I enjoyed coaching as much as I did playing. I was in it for 50, in professional baseball for 51 years. Counting, playing, you know, from the time I, you know, at pro ball until I quit coaching, and I I still enjoyed it. I really enjoyed teaching the kids and being around them. I think they help keep you young too, you know. And I, I've had a a lot of good friendships with some of these players over the years. And I've really enjoyed it, you know. Still stay in touch some with them. And some of my ex players that I had are playing, I'll be sure and try to text them when I see them doing well. You know, they're still playing. I'll text them and and. Uh, give them encouragement when they need to, you know, but, but I just think working with those kids and, and helping them to get better in any way, it's just, uh, it's really a joy. It, it really is It's because it's, it's, it's you don't make a lot of money in the mileage coaching. It's just, it's the other part of it. It's just, it's just the giving back. I thought that, that, that I enjoyed so much, you know, and watching kids learn stuff that you've been and get better at it. That you've been working on all year long, that they finally get it, you know? And so, that, that would just it just kept me going and like I say I never got tired of it and uh, and I, I still enjoyed it even to this day. Matter of fact, like now we live in Northwest Arkansas now and my son is my oldest son is a high school baseball coach so I help him with uh, with these pictures out here. I, I work with him a little bit, you know, just so I can keep the taste in my mouth, you know. So yeah. it, it's been it's been good in both both worlds, you know. And I haven't missed it bad yet. I think because I'm able to help him. these pictures on his team, but, but I did enjoy it very much.
0: Do you have a player or two that really stands out that you felt like you're really able to help them along their way in their career?
1: I've had good reports with a lot of players and, you know, some people you help more than others, but, uh, but I can't say that. I wish I could say I made a significant difference, but you, I was very fortunate over the times I've coached because I've had a chance to coach, uh, like Jacob Degrom and and, and, and um, Barry Zito and and uh, Kluber, you know, now, I mean, those all three of those guys one side Young orbs, But I'm not the reason. I would just, I just feel very fortunate to be a chief, to have a chance to have known those guys and worked with them. You know, it's it's just a, it's just been really a special thing for me.
0: Well, the kingdom was never known as being pitcher friendly. How did you feel about pitching in the kingdom?
1: I used to give up a lot of home runs, but at what ballpark I pitched in. But <laughs> but you one of those things. It intimidated a lot of, 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 of teams. I think I remember. I remember the first year in the Kingdom, there was like Jim Palmer. They had, he did he wouldn't pitch. He, he would come up sick or something when it comes to Kingdom after he pitched one time there. We always miss him. I remember one time Earl Weaver said he thought he had Kingdomitis. You know, <laughs> when he came, but he couldn't pitch. He only had to put post on him, but but it, it was it was a tough place to pitch because see it was only it was only like three hundred and fifty five feet to the power alleys. Most ballparks are three sixty five, three seventy five to three eighty in the power alleys. They were only three fifty five or three fifty two. It might have been. To the power, I said that's short for for gap power. You know, 405 or 400 and was that's norm. But uh, but the balls flew out of that ballpark, and it was just incredible to me how you you don't like it. And same with the Astro turf because there wasn't many turf fields at the time. You know, I think we had one, and and then uh, Toronto had one. I think might be the only ones. That, but you have to learn to adjust to it. That's just the way it is. You got to pitch. You know, you play half your game, there. You just got to learn to adjust to it. And I think. That's what we did, and you don't pay attention to it, you know? You just had to go out there and deal with it. That's just the way it is if you're going to play because yeah. you can't choose to play here or not play here, you know? But, yeah. but it was a, it was exciting to play in that ballpark, though. I'll say that.
0: So I love great baseball stories, and you spent over 50 years in the game. I know you have to have some great baseball stories. Do you have a favorite or two that you like to tell? You know, the ones. Story
1: that I really enjoyed. I thought it would have been cool to be in front of was when, where they last one was was managing it, uh, the Mariners and um, the Mister Jello incident when it was Larry Anderson and, and Joe Simpson. There might have been another two in there, but anyways, you know, did you ever hear about that the Mister Jello thing?
0: No, tell me, tell me the story. Of... Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, what happened? They last all of a sudden we go into Chicago. And we had an off day. We went to Chicago, and uh, I was rooming with Larry Anderson. And I never do this. Nobody. They, these guys were so good; they kept it so quiet. Nobody knew it but them. Uh, you know, you just have to keep that quiet. But they go in, and they saw Renee Laxman down in the lobby. It's a bar. So what they did, they left. They got a key to his room. They go up into his room. They took everything in his room and put it in the bathroom. Everything that was not nailed down, it was put into the bathroom. You couldn't get, I mean, just crammed everything. And they also unscrewed the phone and took the speaker thing out of it. So when they comes up after he's had a few drinks or whatever, <laughs> into his room, it's, you know, it's real late, and he goes in, there's no lights. No lights, no lights, no nothing. So we had to open up the, the curtains, I think, where he could see a little bit from the lights from the city, and Told on, on the phone. They're saying, hello, hello. And he said, hey, my phone, my room. And hello? You know, they can't hear, understand anything. So he goes into the bathroom. There's Jello all in the ba- in the commode. He, he had to take stuff out of the bathroom to go to the bathroom. There's Jello in the commode. So I'll be there. He comes back out. All his luggage had been unpacked and put in the drawers. He took everything out. And so he goes downstairs, and he gets all this, where had to get another room and all that, you know, with just a real big pain. Well, the next day or two, he has a meeting at the ballpark. And he says, hey, look, the hotel is upset about this. He said they, they've got fingerprints and all this and that stuff. And he said, whoever did this need to come clean because they're going, the cops are going to be involved here. Well, you know what? It didn't scare anybody. Nobody, the people that knew about it didn't say a word. He tried to bluff them, you know. It didn't work. So, here we go. As the season's going now, we're playing. And all of a sudden, well, actually, he'd come into the, to his office one day, sit, come in there, and his hat was upside down, open you know, with the open side up. It was full of Jell-O cubes. <laughs> and he had a tape. He had a cassette tape, like he took his some cassette tapes that he had in his bag, you know?
0: Uh-huh.
1: he be laying there with it. The, it had a sign, Mr. Jell-O. This went on different things like he did that at one time. They they, they even took uh, some beer out of his refrigerator and opened it from the bottom with a can opener and filled it full of Jello, and it was driving him crazy. I know uh, his son, one of his sons, was there and he he was telling us that he said Dad was going nuts because he couldn't figure out who it was. He thought he had to figure it. He couldn't figure figure out how it was. And I remember Mel Stolimar at the time was a minor league pitching coordinator for us. And so uh, uh, he heard about this mister Jello going on. So he had these T-shirts printed up. And he come over there, and he, had, and he put in my locker, he put, him in, put, put his T-shirt in my locker, mister Jello. And it was Latch saw this. He found out, I guess the club had told him or something. And Latch called me in the office. And he went, I mean, this was serious. He called me in the office and wanted to know what the deal was. I said, Latch, I have no idea. And he says, but he didn't believe it because I had this t shirt. I said, Look, I have no idea what this is all about. All I tell you, it's, got, it's a Stolmeyer t shirt because they had, had Sporting goods on the front of it. It's so when he had a 40 goods store in Yakima mm. and Mr. Jello on the back, you know. And, anyways, I, he didn't want to believe me, and he finally did. And, you know, it went on all year long, and nobody, he never found out. I think we're closing the season out. It either the last series or the next last series. We're in Toronto, and we come in after batting practice, and you have these tables, and the, like these cafeteria style tables in the uh, um, in the locker room there, and everybody comes in after batting practice, and there's like three guys sitting back there with sacks on their heads. They had Mr. Jello out in front. They always had a deal in there. And they had sacks on it. And the last you it was, they ended up being under the sacks was because they wanted to let him know who did it the season's over. <laughs> it was Simpson and him and it might have been Tom Pachort, I'm not mistaken. I, I can't remember. I know it was Larry Anderson and Joe Simpson for sure. It might have been Pichort, But they were behind that table and nobody knew till then who it was. We were just like last week because they kept it quiet. It's just a but that was one of the funniest pranks I'd ever seen and to to be able to maintain it throughout the year. And like I say every few weeks they would do something just to remind him, you know, just to remind him, and he just kind of drove me crazy about that. But I thought that was that was a funny prank, and I know, and I never felt so bad in my life because Lach was—I mean, he was grilling me hard, and I didn't do anything. I the bachelor, I didn't do anything, and you know, he just knew that I was part of it, you know. And he was grilling me, trying to get me to break. And I said, I can't break this. I don't know anything. So, but anyway, that was that's one of the funniest things I've seen happen at, at, at a ballpark like that, you know.
0: You had such a, an amazing career as a player and a coach. What are you most proud of when you look back at everything you've accomplished? Mm.
1: I'm just glad I was able to give back a little bit because I've, I've loved the game so much. And that's all I was, I'm like any kid when you're seven eight years old, you've been playing the game, and you love it. And you go out there and play, and I was so fortunate to play and to play in the big leagues, and I was so fortunate to see, I didn't even sit out. A year, and I went back to coaching, and I enjoyed that as much as I did playing. I really did. And I remember people would ask me, you know, you want to be a big league coach? I said, you know, that would be great. But if I don't get to the big leagues as a coach, hey, I, I'm fulfilled because I enjoy what I do. You know, I, I, I'm one of those guys that's alive for a lifer of baseball. You know, I really, I said, I enjoy what I do uh, I enjoy being at the ballpark, you know? And so it's it just been a, I've just been very blessed to do what I do my whole life. I feel like I've never worked at all. You know what I mean? Cause what I've done is something I've always enjoyed doing. It's not a, it's not a job for me. You know, I'm, I'm a type guy. I go to the ballpark every day at noon as a coach, you know, I'm there from noon till midnight every day. And, and, you know, I, I just enjoy being at the ballpark. And so, but, but as far as, uh, I, I just enjoyed it. You know, i say this. One thing, you know but a memory of baseball, too? It wasn't as a player, but when I was coaching with Oakland, I was at Visalia, California. And my son, my oldest one's coach here, he was drafted by Oakland hmm. as a pitcher. Anyways, I was able to coach him for two years, and that was really brought my biggest thrill in the game. It really was because I was able to coach him for two years, and we had a good relationship. We've always, our family's always been close. have been very tight. But yet, we had a relationship that where, uh I remember the farm director, he was going to go there, and he said, well, is there going to be a problem, you know, with the father-son? That, I said, I don't know. I don't think it will. And You know, I've had a, a, a player, I mean, with the greatest compliments, tell me he didn't even, he didn't know that was my son, you know, that mm-hmm. we were related, you know, over the course of the year, because it, we kept it very professional, you know. On the, on the field with say, Hey dad, do this or that. I, I, yeah. I, we tried to keep all that, all that professional, but, but I enjoyed coaching him on anything. And you know, it's, it's funny because you figure all the ball games I've seen and everything, When he pitched, I was, a, well, I was a lot more nervous. I was, I you know, I was really nervous when he pitched just because it's your son out there yeah. playing, you know, you won't see him do well and, and all that stuff. But, but that was, that was one of the biggest things I think that in the game that, that, uh, that made a difference for me, I think that helped. Cause I never got a chance to see them, my kids when they were growing up. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm coaching. I was playing baseball. Of course they were born. They were little toddlers, but well, when they got big enough to play. Well, I'm, I'm coaching and they're playing, you know, so I don't get a chance to see them very often. One time I remember I was in Tacoma for a couple of years and my, my sons played on a, on a, a select team out of, um, upper in Seattle. It was, uh, um, uh, Mm-hmm. I got a chance. I said, well, that'd be great. i get to see him play. Well, they played almost as many games as we did. They're playing every single day. just about. I never got to see him play about two games. So I never got to watch him watch play or help them in that way. You know, so i got get a little bit of that back.
0: That's great. Well, Glenn, this has been so much fun for me. It's been so great to catch up with you and uh, share some stories and share some laughs and everything else. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for this.
1: Well, I, hey, I wish I had some more baseball stories to tell you. I just can't remember anything, you know. We're in Kansas City. We had an off day. The Chiefs played. You know, their, their ballpark, mm. their stadium was right next to the to the Royal Stadium. Mm-hmm. And several of us got tickets and went to the ball game. Okay, so the next day we're at the ballpark and we're down in the bullpen. And Raleigh Fingers has binoculars that he brought with him because it went to the Chiefs game. He sat down there and... We're down there in the bullpen and he's looking around. That was with Oakland at the time. Chuck Tanner was the manager. Anyways, we're looking around up in, in, in the stands, or, or, or Raleigh is down there, and you are in the left field line down there. And it, all of a sudden, about the fourth inning, uh, we scored about two or three runs, something like that. And uh, Whitey Herzog, manager Kansas City, but Whitey comes out to the mound. Umpires come out there. All of a sudden, here comes the umpire down to the bullpen. And they, we had to binoculars, you know, just put them under one of the jackets, laying on the on ship. The he comes back and says, Hey, you guys, you guys down there uh, got binoculars, y'all looking at science. I said, No, we ain't doing nothing. No, we ain't got nothing going on. Okay. He goes back. He goes back up there. All of a sudden, that didn't do Whitey Herzog. Here comes Whitey and all the umpires down there. They come down there and they start searching. Why do you want. Whitey walked in the, in the in the bullpen, right there. And he he pulled up his jacket, he pulled up his binoculars. He said, "Here it is, exhibit a in the cheating, exhibit!" A. So they took the binoculars. You know, and we wasn't looking at these signs; they're looking at something else. It was so funny. They we went up there; nothing got happened. Nobody got kicked out of nothing. So the next day, my wife got a she got a bunch of. there was in a little dollar store somewhere. and She bought. Seven, eight pair of these little plastic binoculars. <laughs>
0: she
1: said, you ought to take those to the ballpark and put you guys in a bullpen. I said, that's a good idea. I took them. So right before the game, I had all these binoculars. I put them all around my neck. I kind came of eight pair, and I walked in. The bullpen said, well, Chuck, I'm going to go on down the bullpen. He, laid, oh, yeah, yeah. he says, hey, wait, wait. He just go out to the dugout. And whenever they go up to take up the, the lineups up, be out there in the dugout where they can see, Okay. I go down there, and I was up on it. and did that, and man, the people saw that they started booing and throwing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Whitey was laughing; it was funny, you know. The umpire had all and it was a picture in the paper the next day. The Kansas City paper had a picture of me with all these binoculars around my neck. You know, <laughs> we weren't cheating, buddy. It was just a fun thing. It was just funny how how it got it. You know, the fans all they got all excited about that and booing and everything. You know, and we got so tickled at that, but. uh Anyways, that's that's a good thing. I'm surprised I didn't remember that a while ago. I always liked that. It was a funny story to be there and see that.